0: This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino.
1: Hello and welcome. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino. Thanks for joining us. Compelling new science has triggered a startling shift when it comes to how much alcohol is considered safe to drink. A report released by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction says that alcohol, even in small amounts, increases the risk of serious health issues, including multiple types of cancer, heart disease and stroke. The potential harms become even more concerning for teens, youth and young adults, where drinking and binge drinking are common. To discuss this new research, we are joined by the Director of the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at the University of Victoria. Dr. Tim Namy, is also a professor at UVic School of Public Health and Social Policy and an alcohol epidemiologist. He is currently supported by the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control in the United States for his research on binge drinking and youth drinking, among other areas. Dr. Naimi is also a father of two teenage daughters. He joins us today from Victoria, B.C. Thank you for being here.
0: Ma'am, thanks so much for having me.
1: Let's start with the science. Could you take us through the highlights of the latest evidence-based research when it comes to alcohol consumption?
0: A lot of people would be aware that, you know, alcohol consumed at obviously at high levels has lots of health and social problems. But what's happened over the last 20 years is we've got better at pulling apart the studies is we're understanding that the risks start to increase at very low levels. And that kind of has culminated in the recent release of the Canadian uh, guidelines or guidance on alcohol and health. Um, I was fortunate and honored to be one of uh, 22 or 23 scientists from 16 different institutions across Canada that that participated in that work. The bottom line is, is that, um, you know, for people who drink alcohol, When it comes to health anyways, less is better, and the risk of an alcohol-caused death or other problems actually starts to go up above just two drinks per week, which is surprising to people.
1: It certainly is surprising when you consider that the previous national guidelines from Health Canada back in 2011 suggested women limit their alcohol intake to 10 drinks per week and men 15 drinks per week. Now we're talking about two drinks per week. Can you take us through some of the main findings that impacted this new guidance?
0: So what we're doing this time is a little different from what they did last time, where they kind of just gave a number for men and a number for women. What we're doing this time is giving different risk zones. Our overall goal, Leanne, was we didn't want to pull our punches scientifically. Like we we want to let people know when the risk starts to increase. But we also understand that a lot of people aren't willing or interested to get down to the very lowest levels. So we did give. So the what, what is considered the zero risk zone is actually not drinking at all, which is, you know, very, you know, which is healthy. And, you know, so should be socially acceptable. And then the sort of what we call low risk was no added risk, which was up to two drinks a week. So once you get over two drinks a week, your risk of a death, just to be more, you know, a bit more explicit, is about one in a thousand. And then once you're up to over over six drinks a week, your risk of having an alcohol caused death is over one in a hundred. So we have these different risk zones. And of course, you know, we as health people, we'd love people to to want to minimize minimize the risk as much as possible. But I think part of the reason why, to get back to your question, why the guidelines kind of changed, or at least the way they're reported in the public, is for two reasons. One is the science has changed, and number two is that a lot of people that the our low risk zone is is actually a lower risk than was related to the previous guidelines. In other words, we felt, why should there be a public health document which tells a low risk amount that actually increases the the risk of harms, right? So I think this time, it's again, it's the science showing that the harms start at lower levels than previously appreciated, as well as the idea that we're gonna tell people exactly where those harms start to increase. And that wasn't quite the same um, philosophy on the last
1: guidelines. Dr. Nami, what would you say struck you most as you waded through this research?
0: The number at which, you know, that risk starting to go up uh, above two drinks a week was interesting. But in, in another way, like I've been following this kind of literature for, for many, many years. Our study is made up of thousands of previous studies. So in a way, I wasn't quite surprised by the results. I think even though make, people are making a big deal about these Canadian guidelines, in part because we we call out the, the lower levels of risk, and in part because people perceive it as a as a big change, but in fact the the overall concluding message of the guidance and which is very consistent, and the research has been very consistent, is that drinking less is you know better for health.
1: What do you believe the average person needs to better understand about alcohol and its impact on the body?
0: Well, the active ingredient in in alcohol is ethanol. That's the the chemical. So ethanol has a lot of properties. Uh, It's very small. It goes lots of places in the body. That's why alcohol can affect so many organ systems, the heart, tissues to cause cancer, the stomach, the liver, the brain, it's a small molecule. That's the that that is the substance that contributes most of the calories from alcohol. So, like, for example, a lot of your audience might not be aware that um, there's more calories in a gram of ethanol there is than there is in a gram of sugar, for example. Um, that that information, by the way, is not on any bottle, right? You have to you have to kind of dig around to find that. Um it's the ethanol that is also the carcinogen, the cancer-causing agent, as well as the breakdown of ethanol. Alcohol, or ethanol more, more accurately, has been classified as a, it's called type 1 carcinogen or cancer-causing agent for more than 40 years by the World Health Organization. Um, it is It uh, can be a causal contributor to more than seven uh, types of cancer, including breast cancer, and so it's a really important thing. Some other class one carcinogens—that's the most carcinogenic type of chemical. So uh, cigarette smoke is in that that category. Benzene, you know, which is we're getting hearing a lot about in cosmetic products. Asbestos. So you know, ethanol is a very carcinogenic uh, substance. Just to give an idea, in terms of breast cancer, that's one of the cancers that alcohol can contribute to. Um, For each drink that a woman consumes more per day on average, her risk of breast cancer will increase by approximately 9% relative to her baseline level of risk. Why I'm mentioning the cancer part is that this is one of the areas where the evidence has become much, much stronger over the past 20 years, and it's also an area where most Canadians or Americans for that matter are have very little uh, understanding of the you know the fact that alcohol can cause cancer another way to think about al- alcohol and cancer is in cigarette equivalents so each drink that you take of alcohol has about the same cancer causing potential as either one or two cigarettes depending on if you're a man or a woman anyways i'm not trying to scare people it's not a huge overwhelming risk but i think the purpose of our guidelines is to just you know, again, inform people that you can lower your risk of, of, of alcohol caused problems by drinking less. And at a more broad level is to engage Canadians to better sort of familiarize themselves with, with the health effects that are related to alcohol.
1: We are in conversation with Dr. Tim Namy, Director of the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, about the latest science and guidance on alcohol consumption in Canada. Dr. Naimi, among your areas of expertise and research is youth drinking and binge drinking. What would your message to parents of teenagers and young adults today be as it relates to alcohol consumption for this age group?
0: Well, that's nice. I'm, I'm glad you're asking me. <laughs> you, as you mentioned, as the father of two teens, uh, this is something that's on my mind. But as you mentioned, I've done a lot. Of, I'm actually also a, a board certified pediatrician, so I'm really interested in this age group. Um, To take a step back, you know, alcohol is the most common substance that's used by youth. It's very commonly consumed. And as you mentioned, most youth, when they consume alcohol, are not having like a glass of wine. They tend to be binge drinking. What is binge drinking? Binge drinking, when I was talking about the risks before that we outlined in the guidelines, we're talking about drinks per week or that sort of thing. Well, binge drinking is referring to drinking that's clustered in time. So for men or boys, it's often defined as consuming five or more drinks on an occasion or in a row. For women, it's similar, a little lower, so four or more drinks. Even if you uh, consume exactly at those levels, you'll reach a blood alcohol concentration that is uh, 0.08 or higher, so you'll be in the impairment range. Of course, many people who are binge drinking are drinking much more than five or four even. So it's a really important pattern of consumption, right? And in in addition to causing all the, you know, um, problems to tissues, you have the problem of acute impairment or intoxication. So that's why binge drinking is so critical to things like domestic violence, to car crashes, to drownings, to, um, um, you know, things of this nature. This is the predominant form of drinking that um, that underage youth uh, engage in, so it's really important. Also, we should remember that most kids, uh, you know, teenagers and so forth, they tend to be leaner. You know, when I'm, <clears throat> I would like to tell you that I was skinny at one point in my life. It's not quite true, but but if I told you that, you might believe me because you know, naturally, as we age, we get you know a little bit you know larger. We have more body mass, so. You know, five drinks or four drinks um, for a typical teenager tends to result in higher blood alcohol concentrations than it would for for me, certainly. So for all those reasons, and plus, you know, when kids are younger, as they're still developing socially, they have less, you know, impulse control, these sorts of things. Anyways, um, so what would I tell parents? Well, a lot of parents have a lot of questions about alcohol consumption, but I would say that the main thing that um, parents can do is the research is quite clear that it's not what you say, it's what you do. (laughs) And actually, the bigger area in my research as it relates to youth drinking is this whole concept that in U.S. states and Canadian provinces and territories, we can really predict the amount of youth drinking by looking at the adult drinking in that same state or province, right? Why is that? Well, it's for a number of reasons. First of all, you know, adults are kind of modeling behavior, whether that's in the home, right, as in the case of parents and kids, or in the broader community. You know, kids are exposed to largely an adult environment as they grow up. Second of all, adults are the people who are creating the alcohol policies, that in which kids grow up in. So things like how high are the alcohol taxes? How late do the bars stay open at night? Um, these types of things. Are there warning labels on alcohol containers? And and then finally, adults or people who are of age are the primary source of alcohol that's consumed by youth. So if you look, you know, most alcohol consumed by youth is actually not stolen from their parents or it's not Purchased with a fake ID, it's provided by of age adults. Typically, sometimes it's parents, but often it's um, associates, friends, acquaintances that are you know just over the, the the drinking age. So the the what I'm saying is is that it's the um, folks who are of age or who are adults that are the main determinants of youth drinking. So if you're if you have kids at your home and you want to model that, you know that means not drinking much or when you drink, drinking very little and not not having alcohol be the sort of the central focus of you know the parent's social life these types of things are really really important and are actually more important than uh you know if if parents are drinking excessively and then they turn around and say you know you it's bad to drink too much and you're underage you know that's not necessarily going to make it's it's questionable how much of an impact that has
1: it's time for a short break. More about alcohol consumption guidelines with Dr. Tim Namy when Where Parents Talk continues in a moment. Stay with us.
0: Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk, Listen live at 1059theregion.com.
1: Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. I'm Leanne Castellino, and we're talking about the latest proposed guidelines on alcohol consumption in Canada. Our guest is alcohol epidemiologist and director of the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research and a father of two teens, Dr. Tim Namy. Dr. Namy, you mentioned cancer as one of the chief potential risks associated with with excessive alcohol consumption. Could you take us through some of the others? And also, what do you say to anyone who believes that perhaps this new proposed guidance is exaggeration, people who may not be concerned in the short term?
0: It's actually interesting. Youth are catching on faster than adults about that. The, their, their knowledge about health and alcohol is actually sort of in many ways surpassing that of adults. What we've seen in the U.S. in the past 10 years is very interesting because, you know, I just told you that the relationship between adult drinking and youth drinking is very tight. And I should have said that that's generally the case. But in the last 10 years, what we've seen in the States and I believe in Canada as well, is that we've actually seen total consumption going up among adults, while among youth, it stayed stable and actually declined to some extent, which is a wonderful development. But you're right. Of course, you know, if I'm if I were 14 years old um, and I heard, oh, you know, drinking, drinking alcohol. And by the way, it's not even, um, of course, the risk of cancer is higher at high levels, but the risk of cancer starts to increase with any alcohol. But if I heard about that and I'm 14, you know, I'm not going to be thinking about, you know, well, maybe I'll die at age 55 or 60 from some cancer because it's just, um. It's hard to even for adults, we don't tend to appreciate risks that occur you know that might occur many years in advance. but with respect to alcohol, again, a lot of the most important health effects and certainly social consequences occur from acute intoxication or and and the bad things happen like soon I mentioned a couple of them um, violence. we can explore that apart. you know violence in terms of domestic violence, in terms of sexual assaults. Many sexual assaults, either the perpetrator or the victim are, are impaired by alcohol. Um, things like you know, bar fights or fights in the street or homicides um, are associated with alcohol. Suicide is very strongly associated with alcohol, not just through its relationship with alcoholism or alcohol dependence, but When people are impaired by alcohol and they're depressed, right, that part of their brain that might tell them, don't kill yourself, is kind of overwhelmed. It gets kind of shut off. So there's a role for alcohol in people who attempt or commit suicides. It does not help the situation. Um, Then there's things that are more social in nature. We could say things like um, unprotected sex or you know, sexual encounters that might not otherwise have happened if a person, either male or female, were not impaired by alcohol. Um, things like car crashes, again, drownings, um, even things like arguments with friends or loved ones. Right. That that are, you know, so, so there are a lot of these kind of social social effects. Um, those could extend to things like finances. You know, people, alcohol is not inexpensive in Canada. So. You know, a lot of people, unfortunately, spend spend some of their discretionary money or quite a bit of it on alcohol. So these are some of the menu of things that can happen in the relatively, in the short term, stomach irritation, hangovers all, all these other things, but are, are milder ones too.
1: So with this science now out there, the guidelines now published, what do you think it's going to take to get the public's attention, regardless of age, whether we're talking about adults or young people? Mm-hmm. With respect to how they view alcohol consumption in light of these findings,
0: well, that's a great question, you know, as a scientist, but i but I've also worked in public health for many years. Um, we're hopefully going to do a great job. And the media um, yourself included has been very helpful in in getting the word out. And I think the goal here is not that we want people not to drink at all, but that there should be the kind of a cultural shift because, of course, you know, alcohol is quite iconic culturally in, in Canada and the US. And um, so we kind of want to increase people's awareness. That's going to happen hopefully over time, you know, just releasing a guideline, uh, you know, can't accomplish that. There, there's going to be a lot of efforts to make sure that the guidelines are widely disseminated. But the other thing that we know, uh, Leanne, is that, and, and we're excited about our guidance this way, most, national drinking guidelines are directed to people, right? But most behavior change doesn't occur through the individual. Like, we are all very much products of our environment is where I'm going with this. And so, you know, it's one thing for a bunch of scientists to put out all this information, but that's not by itself likely to... That can change the climate around alcohol in terms of the way people think of it. They're not going to be thinking of it as a sort of a health product or, oh, it's going to be great for my heart anymore, because that science has all been pretty much debunked. But what makes a difference in change is is our policies, our, you know, government policies. So, you know, when the alcohol costs a little bit more, is not available, you know, at all hours of the day at night by clicking a button on your phone, um, when the advertising is throttled back a little bit, these are the things that are shown uh, through science and through public health to make the big difference. Let's think about cigarette smoking, right, which has declined so dramatically uh, in Canada and the US. It's not because people wagged their finger and say oh, you might get lung cancer if you smoke cigarettes. It's because that information was translated into action that resulted in massive increases in cigarette taxes, clean indoor air laws that you know, makes it not possible for people to, to smoke in buildings. Um, all these kind of policy changes that actually make smoking either more ex- inexpensive or more inconvenient or less socially desirable, right? You know, drinking in Canada is still very socially desirable, as is drinking to get drunk. It's kind of like thought of as a joke, right? You know, we might come in on Monday and say, oh my God, I was so hammered on Saturday, and everyone will kind of laugh. So that has changed when it comes to things like drinking and driving. That's no more like people, even if they do that, they're not going to come into the office and joke about it. But like drinking to get drunk is still sort of, you know. Anyways, what, back to the idea is you make, you got to make changes at the policy level. You can't just have a bunch of scientists telling. And that's what we're looking for. That's what we also call on in this report is for the government to complement this with the kind of effective policy interventions that are unfortunately lacking in Canada. And one of them that's really important is we call on the government to require labeling for alcohol products. Because, Leanne, if I'm telling you, okay, your risk of you know dying from an alcohol-caused death at seven drinks a week is X, and you're sitting there with a bottle of whiskey in your hand, you have no idea how many Canadian standard drinks are even in that bottle. You have no idea how many ounces is in a standard drink, right? But why is that information, simple information about the number of drinks in a container not on the label? When if I go to the store and I buy a can of peas, it's going to say, oh, there's five servings and this is, you know, how many, um, you know, what's the volume of a serving? It's going to tell me how many calories there are, right? And meanwhile, we have alcohol, which is an intoxicating, addictive, cancer-causing highly calorie dense substance uh, with lots of health problems. And all we know is there's a little thing that says, you know, 40% ABV or alcohol by volume. We don't know how many drinks are in there. We don't know how many calories they there are in there. There's no information for consumers that this can cause cancer, those sorts of things. So we're calling for labeling
1: How far away do you believe we are from stark labeling, like we saw with cigarette packaging, for alcohol?
0: We strongly believe that the, you know, consumers have a right to know information. What we traded for in the guidance is we're trying to tell people, not telling them what to do. We're not saying you have to get to a number. We're trying to inform them. But the complement to, if we're not going to take that sort of um, heavy-handed approach, is that people have to have clear, simple information that's accessible to them, and that is not available to them. And consumers have a right to know. And and one of the ways they should, the most important way they should have a right to know is right on the label of the product, just like any other dangerous product. Now, when will that happen? And why is alcohol, you know, treated as a special situation compared to other substances sold in Canada? Well, I think the answer to the two of those questions relates to the same thing. It relates to the political will and the political clout of the alcohol industry and the willingness and the, the fortitude of the government to, to sort of stand up to that. So I know or we know we that, um, for example, Health Canada has been involved overseeing, funded our process. They have been very strongly supportive of our science, but we are, you know, we, we, we are interested to see when and if, for example, The government or the provincial governments will endorse the new guidelines, and we are interested to see what they will say about our call for labeling in particular.
1: The timing of this proposed guidance is very interesting for multiple reasons. It's been about a dozen years since we've had national guidelines for alcohol consumption. At the same time, substance use across the board has been impacted in different ways by COVID-19. So what concerns you most as we're looking at the last sort of two or three years, in particular with respect to alcohol consumption?:
0: Well, this is a great question. You know of course, it's like we know that consumption has gone up in Canada. Um, if you look at the probably five or seven percent overall, if you look at just the total volume sold, health harms from alcohol have gone up disproportionately higher even than that. So probably it's a combination of drinking more and having kind of less access to medical resources and a lot of other issues that came with the pandemic. In the countries that really curtailed alcohol consumption had big positive impacts on, on their COVID epidemics. Now, if we look at Canada and the US, what was the initial response to COVID was to declare alcohol an essential product. I mean, right there, that was like, So like alcohol, and meanwhile, there are all these really like uh, important businesses and other, other forms of economic activity that were not, you know, so this was, or once again, you know, alcohol was sort of raised up above everything else and declared an essential product. And then what transpired over the next two years is that a lot of the common sense, you know, policy guardrails we have for alcohol got rolled back. In many cases, they were temporary, but almost all of them have become permanent. So these are things like you probably are aware, but like changes in relaxing sort of policies around home delivery. So, you know, in Canada, never have we been able to get so much alcohol from so many different places, you know, from so many in so many different ways at so many hours of the day and night. These kind of things make a difference. And I'm a strong believer that alcohol should be a legal and available product. But, you know, if you think about it, for people who are vulnerable to the effects of alcohol or vulnerable to drink too much or for whatever reason, we have guidelines in place related to keeping the price a little bit higher than it could be. we you know keeping alcohol a bit more inconvenient to access, to keep the marketing and stuff under control. So we have this whole system of sort of common sense guardrails that are kind of helping people to take this dangerous but legal product and hopefully that so that more people can you know, use it and enjoy it safely compared to who have a problem or cause problems for others.
1: Dr. Namy, we will have to leave it there. Dr. Tim Namey, Director of the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at the University of Victoria, thank you for sharing your insight and expertise with us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Leanne.
1: Remember, you can learn more about our guests, listen to the podcast version, or watch the full video version of this interview at com. I'm Leanne Castellino. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you'll join us next time.
0: Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.